Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast. If it's your first time tuning in, hi, my name is Lisa Marie Imray, and I sit down each week with a cup of coffee and talk about a true crime story. If it's not your first time tuning in, and you listened to last week's episode, then I have to start us off with a bit of an apology. Because last week's episode, the audio was pretty dodgy. Honestly, gave me episode one vibes. It was... Uh, it was pretty shocking. Um, unfortunately, this week might be the same. I'm doing my best. But essentially what's happened is my laptop that I've had since 2013, like nearly 10 years... It's decided to act its age and go kaput. So recording on it is next to impossible. Nothing's saving, nothing's opening. I don't know what's happening, but it's just not great. So I've had to start recording my episodes on my phone, which is what's so good about making a podcast on Anchor is that you can do it on your phone. However, you're obviously just more limited with the editing and and tweaking and all those kind of tools so I'm making sure that I'm doing the best I can to keep the audio minimum where I'm recording from background noise all that kind of business but thank you all for bearing with me while I sort that out but hopefully that will all get sorted soon hopefully big hopefully fingers crossed Santa I've been a good girl this year I'd like a new laptop please (laughs) might have to go to a few malls and sit on a few of Santa's laps (laughs) And ask very nicely. <laughs> oh, no, stop, Lisa Marie. Oh, you know when you're like so overtired, you go a little bit crazy? That's me today. I have just driven back from Lake Torpor. I went up yesterday and I driven back down today. And it's about a four and a half, five hour trip from where I live. So it's been a lot. But it was for a very special reason. It was my granddad's 80th birthday. Happy birthday, Granddad. Love you. But it was also very extra special because family came over from Australia and from the UK, who I haven't seen for like so long. So it was amazing to catch up with everyone. So quick shout out to my Auntie Louise from Australia, uh, Auntie Jill from the UK, and my cousin Chris and Emily. Unfortunately, my cousin David couldn't come. But a very, very special shout out to... Chris's partner, Lauren, I met her officially for the first time yesterday, and she told me that she listens to Coffee and Crime, so that's crazy. So this is for you, Lauren, special shout out, thank you so much for listening and being amazing and supporting, and it was amazing meeting you as well. So there you go, that's the little haps that's happening in my life at the moment, but that's probably not why you're here, not to really hear about my life, but to hear about a true crime story. So let's get into it. Grab your cup of coffee or whatever caffeinated beverage you need to get through your day. Trust me, I am pounding down a coffee right now (laughs) because I need it. But this week's case is a technically and legally unsolved, but more or less theoretically solved. It is the murder of Clara Dorothea Olsen. The following episode contains adult language, discussion on drink driving, depictions of a suicide prank, abortion, child death and murder that listeners may find disturbing. 
This podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. So before diving into the story, it does take place in the very early 1900s. So information-wise, it is quite limited. A lot of the information I do have come from a few newspaper articles I found and a book called Murder in Wisconsin, the Clara Olson case by Larry Shekel, Shekel, but even in that book, Larry gives different theories and more speculative comments to try and fill in some blanks and details that are unknown. So I'll go with what I know, but I'll try and make it clear whether it's theory rather than fact, if that makes sense. Cool? Cool. All right, let's get into it. Clara Dorothea Olson was born on the 12th of September 1904 in Seneca, Wisconsin, and she was the sixth of ten children born to Norwegian immigrants Christian and Dina Olson. However, one of her older brothers unfortunately died when he was only a month old, so she had nine living siblings growing up. Now, at some point in her early childhood, the large family nine kids, that is a large family, they moved an hour north to La Crosse, Wisconsin, where they owned a 370-acre farm. Now, the family, they made quite a modest living. However, they were considered middle to low class. And I probably would put that down to the amount of children they had. (laughs) It ain't cheap having one, let alone nine. However, In La Crosse, the family did make sure to form bonds with the other Norwegian immigrants in the area. In fact, the area itself, La Crosse down to Prairie Duchenne, 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 I'm sorry, I'm going to say this wrong, Prairie Duchenne along Highway 27, including other small towns in this little vicinity, was known as Little Norway because they were mainly settled by Norwegian immigrants. Now, growing up, Clara was described as a girl who was, quote, of joyous nature, end quote. She was blossoming into a beautiful young woman that was very polite, very happy, and she worked extremely hard on the farm. She wasn't very educated. She did attend school, but most of her time was spent working on the family farm. She would help with the milking, collecting eggs, helping around the house, but she didn't have a lot of yeah, education or life experience. Now, the Olsen family were members of the Utica Lutheran Church and they would attend services weekly, if not daily, and they did participate in social activities. But again, it's a structured setting, you know? It was social and she got to meet people and talk to people, but it was in a church setting. The Lutheran Church held these events every now and again called basket socials and this was the time where people could make and sell goodie baskets and they could show off their talents they had in arts and craft or they could give samples away of what their farms produced but it would also be like a big dinner and a night of dancing like it was a big event. It was there to raise money for the church but it sounded like a really good time as well. Now, Clara attended many of these socials during her youth and teen years, and as she was becoming a beautiful young woman, she caught the eyes of many suitors, and she would dance the night away with them, but also with her younger sister, Alice, and they were the closest in age out of all the siblings. 
they were all a very close family and all the siblings got along, but Clara and Alice were like the closest and they were each other's best friend. Now, Clara was a bit of a hopeless romantic and she would have so much fun just being swept around a dance floor with these suitors and her sister and she just loved all that kind of stuff, which hashtag relatable. However, on the 21st of June, 1925, now at 20 years old, this is when Clara's heart would truly be taken. At one of the basket socials held by the Utica Lutheran Church, this is where Clara first met 17-year-old Erdman Olsen. Now, I'll pause this right there because we've got Clara Olsen and Erdman Olsen. What's going on there? <laughs> well, even though they share the same last name, same kind of background, we're about to find out about Erdman, but they have no relation between the two of them. They're not related, but it's quite interesting because there's a lot of similarities in their background, but it's just what it says. They're not related. And thank goodness that they're not either because that'd be awkward. Now, upon seeing each other for the first time, Cupid's arrows struck them both and they were just absolutely smitten with each other. Erdman Sanford Olsen was a strong, handsome young man that was born to Albert and Anna Olsen, who were also Norwegian immigrants, just like Christian and Dina. They lived in the little Norway region of Wisconsin, just like Christian and Dina. And they were also a farming family, just like Christian and Dina. This is what I'm saying. There's so many like similarities about Clara's background and Erdman's background, it's just kind of weird that they're not related. But they're not. It's just what it says. Just what it says. However, Erdman's family were considerably wealthier than Clara's family. Erdman's father, Albert, he ran a very successful tobacco farm in the village of Rising Sun, Wisconsin, which is an hour south from La Crosse. It was over 280 acres and the buildings on the farm were valued at 75,000 US dollars, which today would be over 1.2 million US dollars. So wealthy, wealthy. They came from old money, so that definitely did help them. Now, Erdman was well-educated, articulate, well-spoken. He was enrolled at a Norwegian Lutheran church institution called Gale College. And this was in Galesville, which is actually 30 minutes north of La Crosse. But he traveled. And the way he traveled was because he had his own car. Vroom, vroom. Skirt, skirt. <laughs> I'm probably going to put a bit more effort to that. Skirt, skirt. <laughs> now, Erdman had his own brand new Ford Roadster, which I had to Google that was because I don't know cars. And damn, <laughs> that was a huge flex for that time. And it certainly impressed a lot of young women and a few older ones. We don't discriminate. But Erdman knew that it caught the eyes of many women and he loved it. I'm just going to say it from the get-go so that we're all on the same page. Erdman was a walking red flag, okay? Everything about him, red flag. But gals being gals, we seem to go colorblind when these red flags flash a smile or a wink in our direction. And Clara, being the hopeless romantic that she was, was no different. Now, at this basket social in June of 1925, 
Clara and Erdman spent the entire evening together. They were chatting, getting to know each other, having a dance, having a boogie, probably a little bit of flirting going on there. But they were just having a good time. You know, Clara's probably planned her whole life already with him. <laughs> good thing she doesn't need to change her last name when they get married. <laughs> and Erdman's there. He thinks she's beautiful and he's glad to have spent the evening with her. When the evening came to a close, Erdman very kindly offered to give Clara and her sister Alice a ride home, to which they very eagerly on Clara's part accepted. Now to Clara, Erdman was initially just showing off to the two sisters as he drove them home at a very quick pace, you know, fast and furious style, speeding down the dirt roads to the farm. And this caused Clara to squeal with excitement. She loved the rush. She loved the thrill. She was in love. But for Alice, she wasn't so colorblind. <laughs> she knew that there was something off about Erdman. But she saw that her sister was so happy. And she didn't really want to stand in the way of that. You know, the two girls were extremely close. Each other's best friend. They'll have a gossip about it later. Now, after the speedster dropped the girls home... Alice did voice her concerns about his reckless driving, and she even told Clara that she saw a flask in his coat pocket. Now, remember, this is the 1920s. It is the height of prohibition, and drinking alcohol or moonshine was a crime. But especially since they were just at a church event, it was just a bit like, hmm, okay, okay. So Alice voiced these concerns, but to Clara, she was walking on the air. She said that it was such a thrill to be in that car, and she just brushed her sister's comments off. Now, from that night on, Clara and Erdman set off into a summer romance. Clara being an adult, her parents trusted her with going out and making good decisions. It didn't pull her away from her duties on the farm. She still worked hard, but her whole family could just see how happy she was. You know, Erdman would take her out to dances in nearby towns. They would go for long drives in the hills and valleys of Kickapoo. <laughs> Kickapoo. <laughs> Is that how it's said? Kickapoo. <laughs> but you have to remember, Erdman lived an hour away down in Rising Sun. But he would visit Clara so often, so obviously, like, gas costs nothing. But that's so much effort into seeing Clara and spending time with her, which, like, honestly, I'm still waiting for my partner to text me back. <laughs> Men, <laughs> even though he was a walking red flag, at least he put in effort. <laughs> but no matter how many dates and outings that the pair went on, Erdman turned down any and all invitations to meet Clara's parents. He even refused to walk her to the front door whenever their night was over. He would drop her off at the end of the long driveway on the outskirts of the property and she would walk up to the house. Or he would make her walk quite a distance away from the family home to be picked up. He never introduced her to his parents and would avoid the topic of meeting families altogether. Now, whenever Christian, Clara's father, would bring up the matter and say how he wanted to meet, you know, the young male that was spending all this time with his daughter, Clara would deliver some excuse on his behalf. Alice would jump in to defend her sister, again, just happy to see her happy, but also hoping that this was just going to be 
a summer romance before Erdman went back to college in September. When September rolled around, it seemed that Clara had no intention whatsoever of calling it quits with Erdman, and he made no move into doing so either. Instead, he went off to college and the two continued their relationship through love letters. Each week, the two would correspond. Erdman did put a lot of content and what seemed to be effort in his letters. He remembered her birthday and wished her a happy birthday for her 21st. He would also tell Clara about his time at school and what he was learning. But he did include his social life as well, what he was getting up to. And this included going to dances and other events. Now, in a testimony given by Alice later on, she would say how she did see some of these letters as Clara would show her and gush over how smart and exciting her boyfriend's life was. But to Alice, alarm bells are going off again. She's seen the red flags in what Erdman was writing. If he was going to these social gatherings, who's to say he isn't entertaining another woman? Or women, plural, multiple. But Clara said she didn't care if he did that because he wrote to her with such love that it must mean that their connection would be greater than any other he would have with anyone else. Erdman would express his deep feelings for Clara in these letters, so it seemed as though Clara just ignored the rest of the contents and only focused on the sweet words of sweet nothings and of love that he would write. Alice also heard through her own friends who had brothers or boyfriends that attended the college that Erdman was a bad boy. In school, he was a bad influence, always causing trouble, always up to no good, always drinking out of his flask, and just not the greatest person to be around. Now, come Christmas of 1925, over the holiday break, Erdman returned home and all seemed to be bliss again for Clara. But once again, her parents were concerned about how standoffish Erdman was about coming over. It's the holiday period. It's the get-together season. It's Christmas. You spend time with your family, your friends, your loved ones. That's what you do. So why is Erdman not coming over? But they trusted their adult daughter that she would do the right thing. In the early months of 1926, Erdman started visiting more often from the college Instead of just writing letters, he actually drove down. It's only 30 minutes away, so it's actually closer for him to drive from the college to her house instead of from his own house, which is an hour away. But he didn't do that before, and now he's doing it now. So it did seem as if he was keen on a committed relationship with Clara, but I think it was more the satisfaction of saying that he had a stable girlfriend, a stable relationship, and he knew that Clara adored him. It was in the February-March of 1926 that Clara and Erdman seemed to take their relationship to the next level. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Erdman would pick Clara up and instead of going to a dance or a social gathering, he would take her for a long drive down dark private roads and the couple would find themselves in Lover's Lane a few times. Now, some theorize that Erdman pressured Clara into having sex, but others say that she's a 21-year-old woman. Even though it's the 1920s, women still have sexual urges, okay? It happened back then, trust me. But she also came from a large family. She had been around animals on the farm during mating season. She knew what sex was, 
and she probably just wanted to have sex with her boyfriend that she was in love with. It's unclear how it happened, but it did. The two started engaging in sexual behavior. Then in April 1925, Erdman's irreputable behavior at Gale College seemed to catch up with him. He had caused multiple fistfights with classmates, shot his .22 revolver into the wall of his dormitory multiple times, always seemed to be intoxicated on moonshine, became a supplier of the illegal alcohol. But the most disturbing thing that Erdman did, and this seemed to be the icing on the cake, was a heinous prank that he pulled. One night, he tied a noose around a dummy and hung it out of the window of his dorm room, making those walking past think that he had committed suicide. Like, that's just not something to joke about. It's disgusting. Now, after this quote-unquote prank, plus the accumulation of all of his disgusting behavior at the college, Erdman was told to either leave quietly on his own accord or be expelled and have a black mark on his record. So he chose to leave quietly. However, pretty much straight away, he started appealing many times to the school authorities to be let back in, but of course they were not keen on that idea. Until Erdman's mother, Anna, had a private meeting with the president of Gale College, Kay Lockensgard, and all of a sudden he was able to re-enroll. Mm-hmm private meeting between the mother and the president and then he's let back in so I'll leave that to to your interpretation of what that meeting was about so pretty much after a few weeks of leaving Erdman was back in the college and actively tried to be better it was reported sorry guys quick side note here if in the background you hear some loud bangs and big booms it's because a thunderstorm has just started and I don't have the capacity on my phone to edit the background noise as much as I would on my laptop so that's what that is if you hear it anyways back to the story so Erdman never disclosed to Clara what happened with his schooling being expelled being let back in he merely kept up the pretense to her that life was all good same old same old on his end But in May of 1926, Clara's own life turned upside down when, and I swear this is every virgin's nightmare, she had fallen pregnant. Remembering the time, being pregnant and unmarried was hugely frowned upon, especially with her reputation of being the good girl and Erdman's reputation of being the bad boy, she knew how this was going to look. Now, whether or not it was because she was in denial about the whole thing, she kept this information to herself from Erdman, but also from her closest sister and friend, Alice. Clara seemed to just hope that she was late with her period or that it was just a nightmare that she was going to wake up from. But like Erdman, Clara kept up the pretense to him that her life was all good and same old, same old. Yeah, that's the rain you can hear now in the background. That's fantastic. Woo! Anyway, as the months passed, it was obviously getting harder for Clara to conceal her little secret. Now, it's unclear how, but she was able to obtain a maternity corset to hide her pregnancy for some time. But imagine the gossip that would have circled around the town if she had been seen buying one. Like, honestly, Bridgerton, Lady Whistledown vibes (laughs) right now. So it would have been interesting to know how she got around that. But... Getting the maternity corset, she knew that this was a temporary solution that she would need to sort out 
sooner rather than later. Now, in a flash of time, it was now August and Clara was entering her third trimester. She finally reached out to Erdman, mentioning her oh there you go mentioning her situation and how he needed to do the right thing and come home and marry her but weirdly he stopped replying what why would he do that oh how things have not changed it's like a hundred years later and this is still happening but anyway he was not replying. Clara was starting to panic. This was the love of her life. Why would he not be wanting to marry her and live happily ever after? I don't know, Clara. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Anyway, on the 17th of August, Albert and Anna Olsen, Erdman's parents, they received a letter of their own from Clara. Now remember, they hadn't even met her. They didn't even know who she was. So imagine their reaction when they received a letter that read... Quote, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Albert Olson, I know you folks will be surprised to hear from me and what I have to say. Understand I am a good friend to your son, Erdman, and I'm sorry to say we are in a pinch and have to get married. If God is willing, and if you folks are willing to help us. I wrote Erdman a letter some time ago to come down and marry me because I do not want him to get in trouble and I don't want my parents to know and I hope you folks will help us before my folks find out what has come. Please be good to Erdman. I know he never meant to leave me. It is only four and one half months left now until I will be expecting. So I hope Erdman and I can get married this month and make our lives worthwhile. I am closing with love and God's blessings and I hope to hear from you and see Erdman soon. End quote. Like bombshell. <laughs> Hello. Oh my goodness. Albert and Anna were shocked. They had no idea what to think, so they took the letter to Erdman, and they asked him about the contents of the letter, and apparently he, quote, seemed surprised, end quote, by it, refused to take responsibility. Once again, oh, how things have not changed. But Albert, however, ordered him to bring Clara over to have a medical examination done. Clara actually refused to go. She had an inkling that his family would force her into getting a termination. I don't know how or why she actually did refuse. Like, again, that's a theory from Larry Shackle's book, but it doesn't really make sense why she would refuse. So it depends on how Erdman must have worded the letter to Clara asking her to come down for the exam. But obviously, forcing someone getting an abortion, termination of pregnancy, that was very much illegal back in the 1920s. So then Albert and Anna came to the conclusion that because she refused to come down and get a medical examination done, that Clara was just reaching out to any of her lovers to claim this child. She must have been a promiscuous girl and decided to pin it on Erdman because he was young and came from wealth and privilege. So his parents believed him when he proclaimed his innocence in the whole situation. Fair enough. I mean, they're his parents. And there's no proof, but, you know, it's... Erdman, come on, man. Take responsibility, please. Man up. But after this conversation, Erdman knew he was in big trouble because Clara had definitive proof that the baby was his. The two had shared some saucy details in their letters earlier in the year after they started sleeping together. They were sexters. Sex letters. Sexters. I don't know. 
I tried to make that work. It didn't work. Let's just forget about that. But anyway, Clara would only need to show these letters to her parents or to his parents, and it would be confirmed without a doubt that the baby was his and that he has lied about it. So he needed to figure a way out of this situation. On September 7th, Clara received a letter from Erdman. He had spun some lie about being in and out of the hospital, so that's why his response was a bit delayed. But he left her a set of instructions to follow if they wanted to make their marriage, which in turn make their baby legitimate. Erdman stated in his letter that on September 9th, in two days' time, he wanted to meet Clara at midnight. Now, if she agreed to meet with him, she would need to leave a lit lantern in her upstairs window. She would also need to destroy all of their previous letters so that there was no evidence of any plan that was being made and that this was all done in the passions of love. He instructed Clara to only pack clothes and money for a couple of days, but not too much to make it suspicious. He also said to Clara not to mention this plan to anyone and to leave a note for her family on the night saying that she'd be back in a couple of days. He said, quote, we'll go and get the ceremony over with and come back in a week or so and let them know. Do as I have asked you and everything will be okay. If you don't, your chance may be shot and I might make a scarce hubby. So if you want to avoid disgrace, do as I say and keep mum. As ever, as usual, end quote. So, you know, real lovely words there. He said that it would be their wedding trip to Hendrum, Minnesota, which is the same as Winona. I didn't really get that, but that's what he said. This is a six-hour drive to Hendrum, Minnesota, across state lines, which was somewhere they could be married and receive their marriage license on the same day. Once again, Clara read this letter through a rose-tinted view. She didn't even question the bizarre request because she followed through with them. On September 9th, she had a skip in her step and she was keeping herself busy by baking and cleaning and just doing everything she could to make the day go quickly. Now, while baking some goodies throughout the day, Clara would subtly be burning each of Erdman's letters, taking a moment to soak in the love-filled words before turning them into embers. Now, in the early evening of the 9th, Erdman left his parents and went to a social dance in Seneca, and many people theorised this was in order to provide an alibi for him. There were witnesses who placed him at the event, including a woman named Marie Anderson, who was very good friends with Alice, Clara's sister. Now, Marie testified later that Erdman was visibly drinking moonshine. Again, middle of prohibition, you do this on the sly, but... Erdman was out there for everyone to see, drinking from his flask. Erdman invited Marie for a dance. They were meant to do a foxtrot, but Marie noted that, quote, he couldn't keep step, end quote. And this was due to how inebriated he was. Now, around 11.30pm, Erdman was seen leaving the venue accompanied by an unidentified man. Now, we'll put a pin in that. Remember that, an unidentified man. Now, while he was away dancing his socks off, Clara was making her own preparations. Alice noted how fidgety Clara was before bed, and she tried to coax some information out of her. Like, what's going on? Why are you jiggity-jagging everywhere? Like, what's happening? But Clara, usually spilling everything out to her sister, refused to say a word. Just before midnight, as instructed, Clara lit a lantern and left it in her window, 
and began to write a letter to her parents. It said, quote, Dear folks, I know you all will be surprised to find me gone. I am leaving this evening. I will have to go tonight. I did not know I was going until this afternoon, but could not make up my mind to go till now when I am leaving. Please do not worry about me as I will not be gone for very long. Again, I must tell you not to worry about me as I am taking good care of and will be back soon. I cannot explain to you tonight why I am leaving, but when I come back, I will. Now, please do not take it too seriously as it will mean nothing, only a little surprise. I will be back soon from my trip. Now, please remember, don't worry about me. I'll be back soon, end quote. You can kind of tell in that, like, again, her level of education's not fantastic because that was quite difficult to read. <laughs> so when midnight came, Clara went to leave her house and she ran into Christian, her father. He wasn't asleep yet, but she merely assured him that she was, quote, getting a breath of fresh air, end quote, as she stepped outside. But a few moments later, Christian heard a car speed away. He wasn't concerned enough to investigate or follow the car. Clara was about to turn 22 years old. He had no hold over her and he trusted her. But the next morning, Clara had not returned home. Her bed was empty and this is when Christian found her note. Now the fact that she repeatedly used the phrases like, do not worry about me, please don't worry about me, I'll be fine, everything's all good, this didn't really put him at ease. So Christian sent Bernard, Clara's older brother, to Albert Olsen's farm because there was no one else he would suspect Clara to have met with at that time of night. Now, as Bernard was leaving his family home, he noticed distinctive tyre marks on the road outside the property and a few more times along the journey to Albert's farm. He also noted that the tracks continued on past the farm to the south but then also some tyre marks that came back up from the south and turning into the property. Remember that, it is important. Now, upon arriving at the farm, Bernard was met by Anna, Erdman's mother, who welcomed him into the home and informed him that Erdman was asleep. But Bernard, he went and confronted the 18-year-old about the whereabouts of his sister, being the big brother that he is, to which Erdman denied having seen Clara at all. And of course, Bernard wasn't having a bar of it, told him he saw the tire track, so he knew he was lying. So Erdman told his story again, but it changed. Erdman told Bernard that he had picked Clara up, drove her to Viroqua, gave her $50 and sent her off. She said that she was sick of the farm and the country life and wanted to go to Minneapolis to make something of herself. But again, this story didn't hold up either because Viroqua was north of Rising Sun and the tyre marks that Bernard had seen was heading south. But he didn't press on. Erdman was, sorry, Erdman was not in a sobering state. He wasn't going to get any clear or truthful answers out of him, so he left it. But this really sat with Bernard because Clara had never mentioned the desire to leave the country life or her family behind, so it just didn't add up. So after two weeks with no word from Clara, Christian and Dina decided to pay Erdman's parents a visit. Now Erdman had returned to Gal College, so they wanted to have a parent-to-parent chat about what their children had been up to. Now Anna greeted the couple with a bit of a scoff. She relayed to Clara's parents that they had no idea where she was, and Erdman had no idea where she was, and she told them not to worry. 
In fact, she said, quote, forget it a while. She'll be back about Christmas time with a child and no husband, end quote. So, yeah, the ball dropped hard on Clara's parents right there. They had absolutely no idea about the pregnancy. This is the first time they're hearing about it. And it's like, Erdman's mum is being a bit of a bitch. Like, she's like, ugh. Your daughter's a whore, and my son is innocent and has nothing to do with it. Like, what? (laughs) The first feeling Christian and Dina felt was shame because of how Clara was being spoken about. The fact that she'd gotten pregnant, hadn't told them, and has now run off. But they knew that they had to find her. On September 26th, Christian and and Bernard took a little trip up to Gale College to speak with the man of the hour, Erdman, but they had to find him. So they were asking his classmates and anyone that they came across about if they had seen Erdman and they wanted to speak to them about Clara. Now, a lot of them knew Clara as Erdman's sweet hickey or his green country girl, which may sound like sweet terms of endearment, but in actual fact, it's a bit of a backhanded insult. Hickey refers to Clara being quite uneducated and a bit dumb, and Green refers to her naivety and inexperience. So it was actually not a very nice thing to say about someone. Now, when Christian and Bernard found and confronted Erdman, he relayed the same story about dropping her in Viroqua, giving her $50 and sending her off, but Christian wasn't buying it. Like, he was pleading with Erdman to tell him where Clara was. He even offered Erdman some land and cattle to establish a small farm for him, Clara, and the newborn baby. Christian told Erdman that he had no hold over Clara, but he wants Erdman to do the right thing by her. But Erdman didn't budge. So Christian finally gave gave him an ultimatum. Bring Clara home within three days, or he would send the sheriff after him. And with that, Christian and Bernard left Gale College. So the next three days went by and there was no sign of Clara, but word had come from Erdman. He had made two letters and sent one to Christian and one to his own parents. Now to Christian, he wrote, quote, I know Clara can't be back by the time you say. What a fool I'd be to wait for the sheriff. I don't want you to cause trouble for my people who know nothing of this. Your daughter will come back to you when I come back. I am leaving school, so don't try and find me. End quote. And to his own parents, Erdman wrote, quote, I am leaving tonight for some place where no one knows. I have decided to skip until things come back to normal. I shall not even tell you folks where I am going, though God knows how I feel. I have thought of finishing everything, but life is sweet and hard to part with. But I say this that I would rather take death than captivity. Sometime I may write you, but I can't say that you'll ever see me again. I would not blame you if you don't. I will never stay in one place for too long. It is too dangerous. Mother, I suppose your health will suffer tremendously from this, and it might wreck father, but do not let it do that. Forget me. These people cannot prove anything definite, although they will try. Do not let them try to pull anything over you folks. Please try to bear this with bravery and forget me as I am not worthy of your memory. Shut me out of your thoughts entirely as I have never lived. Goodbye and God bless you. End quote. That's actually really sad. (laughs) Even though if he just admitted to what he had done, all this could have been avoided. But that's actually a really, 
a really sad letter. He's pretty much told his parents that he's leaving. You're never going to see him again. He thought about killing himself, but now he's not. He knows that it's going to hurt his family, but he's telling them to move on. Now, it's hard to know whether he is being genuine about this, about the thoughts of suicide. It's hard to know whether he's just doing this to save face. But regardless, as parents receiving that letter, that would be absolutely heartbreaking. It really would be. So then it turns out on the 27th of September, the day after Erdman's conversation with Christian and Bernard, he went to visit the Gale College president, Kay Lokensgaard, the very same president that old Mama Olsen got very close with. But Erdman told Mr. President Daddy that he was leaving school for a few days to have an operation on his throat. And then he left. And this is the last known true sighting of Erdman Olsen. So upon receiving his letter, Christian went out to hire two private investigators to look into the disappearance of his daughter. He wanted it solved. The whole family, they needed answers. So investigators Sullivan and Kazween piled up all the evidence they could find, which was the letters sent to the two Olsen families, not related, remember, uh, along with the tire mark sightings and looking a bit more into Erdman's background. And they presented this evidence to Sheriff H. W. Sherwood, sorry, Harry W. Sherwood and Justice C. H. Speck. So let's dive a little deeper into Erdman's past because investigators Sullivan and Kazween dug really deep and found out some pretty insane stuff about our walking red flag. When Erdman was nine years old in 1918, he was playing with a five-year-old friend called Charlie Heverin and they were playing a game called Wild West, you know, pretending to be cowboys and shoot stuff and all that kind of business. Now, on this particular day, Erdman wanted to make the game more real. He's nine years old. Of course he is. His imagination's running wild. So he went and got his father's shotgun. But not knowing how to use it, he thought it would be okay to load a 16-gauge bullet into a 12-gauge shotgun, essentially jamming it into the chamber. He let Charlie have a go with it first to go and shoot some tins off a blog or something like that. But as soon as Charlie touched the trigger, the gun exploded. The bullet was too big for the gun and it went off inside the chamber and the explosion killed Charlie instantly. This was a huge secret that not even Albert or Anna spoke about. Like he's nine years old, it's a horrific accident and that's what it was ruled as. But the investigators heard it from the townsfolk when they were investigating into Erdman. But then eight years after this, Erdman was connected to another violent death in the neighborhood. So everyone was always quite weary of Erdman. People in the area thought he was a naturally evil person. You know, you've got the argument nature versus nurture. Everyone thought that he was a naturally evil person. But now his girlfriend, his pregnant girlfriend was missing and he was nowhere to be found. So it's not looking good for Erdman. Now, after all this evidence was brought before Justice H. Speck, he and the district attorney did something very unprecedented. In November of 1925, sorry, 1926, they issued a warrant for Erdman's arrest for the murder of Clara Olson. 
They didn't even know if she was dead. They had no body. They hadn't found her. They hadn't found him. But with his violent history and his present behavior and character, they were convinced. Now, obviously, this angered Erdman's parents. They had lost their son, too. No idea where he was, but they just knew he was a murder suspect for a murder that hadn't been confirmed. They believed and always believed that he was innocent of the murder and that he was not the father of her unborn child. So when the arrest warrant was issued, a massive search was conducted for Clara, with only the tyre tracks heading south to go off, and that's where the search party started. This is also due to the media traction on her disappearance. Everyone was publishing her photo and story, already signing Erdman off as guilty. So it brought in a lot of people, a lot of journalists, a lot of people just wanting to help. Erdman's photo was also published to, you know, make people keep an eye out for him. There were a few reported sightings here and there, but the only kind of solid lead was that he cashed in some checks in Minneapolis. But then that's it. There was initially a $200 reward which would be equivalent to just under three and a half thousand US dollars today for anyone who could find anything about Clara or find Clara or any information. However, a brutal winter had just hit. It was heavy snow and the weather was far too dangerous to be outside. And so unfortunately, the search came to a standstill. Now, while waiting for the weather to settle, Clara's family essentially got cabin fever. You know, they're all worried sick. They're bouncing theories off each other about what happened to her, speculated the worst outcomes and just drove themselves insane with worry. And it was during this weather lockdown, essentially, Christian had a dream, which some people think is was more of a premonition. Christian had a dream that he saw Clara's body face down, dead, in a shallow grave. So on December 2nd, the snow finally lifted and the weather was safe enough for people to go out. And the search party increased from about 100 people to well over 1,000. And they were all out looking for Clara. Now around 10.30am on the 2nd, farmers Charles Bowden and Al Marvin were looking around an area known as Battle Ridge and this was in the township of Prairie du Chien which is about an hour south from La Crosse and about 40 minutes south of Rising Sun. Now about a hundred yards off from Highway 27 the farmers saw some soil that had a yellow tinge to it and being experienced farmers they knew that this indicated that someone had overturned the soil before the snow set in. So they went about moving the soil to see why that spot in particular had been overturned and only a foot or so deep down, this is when they found the heels of a pair of shoes. They continued moving the dirt and this is when they came across Clara's body. Just as Christian had seen in his dream only a week or two prior, her body was face down in a shallow grave. Her body was lifted and taken to the coroner's office in Prairie du Chien, where Christian and Dina identified their daughter. The state pathologist, Dr. Charles H. Hunting, conducted an autopsy and concluded that Clara had died of a, quote, compound fracture of the skull and the resulting bleeding, end quote, which is more or less now blunt forced trauma. Clara had suffered a single blow to the back of her head, which killed her instantly from an object that could have been a hammer or the blunt side of an axe. 
She was six months pregnant at the time with a baby girl. She wouldn't have even known what she was having. That's so sad. Dr. Hunting also found, tucked in the bosom of her black silk dress, sodden with mud, blood and rainwater, two letters. Clara had not followed all of Erdman's instructions and seemed to hold on to two letters that she probably couldn't bear to part with. One of them being the letter she received on September 7th with the instructions from Erdman on how they were going to run away and get married and what she had to do. But this essentially solidified the case against Erdman because it put him at the scene, told what the plan was going to be, and now she's turned up dead in a grave. Hmm. After Clara's body had been found, an inquest was held and Erdman's parents defended Erdman's guilt. They did so by providing the details of what Erdman had done that evening and just how it would have been impossible. He went to this dance where witnesses placed him at and then he returned home at around 1.15am, made a sandwich and went to bed. So if he left the dance at around 11.30 in Seneca, made the 15-minute drive to Lacrosse to pick Clara up, then the hour drive south to Battle Ridge, killed Clara and then was home for 1.15am. That, that just would have been impossible. However, it's not unlikely that those trips took a shorter amount of time due to Erdman's habit of driving at high speeds. The prosecution speculated that the grave must have been pre-dug around the 7th of September when Erdman had written the letter and just proved how this was all premeditated. It was believed that he went to the dance to have an alibi and witnesses from this dance were called to testify and that's where Marie Anderson came in. However, there was the case of the unidentified man that Erdman left the dance with, but no one had any idea or any suggestion of who this could have been. But Albert and Anna clung on to this detail, you know, wanting to prove that it wasn't their son, but this other guy. Even Christian, Clara's father, hung on to the detail because he didn't want to believe that Clara dated a cold-blooded killer. He also didn't want to think that an 18-year-old boy could do this. But alas, no one could even give a description of this person that was meant to be with Erdman, and there was no other murder suspects, no one with any motive, and now all the evidence of Clara's death led straight to Erdman. Every time that Albert and Anna were pressed by journalists into the whereabouts of their son and why they're still defending their guilt, they were becoming more and more defensive. They claimed that Erdman had run off because Christian was threatening him, and now that the whole town was against him, there was no way he could come home until someone else was proven guilty for Clara's murder. On December 7th, 1926, 150 cars lined up behind Clara's hearse for a ride through the howling blizzard to the church where she was laid to rest. In the cemetery of Utica Lutheran Church, there was about 600 people who came to her funeral, even though the church could only accommodate to about 300. It was December, it was snowing, it was raining, the ground was a dirty, slushy mess, but it didn't deter anyone from attending. At the funeral, Reverend Martin Dumanas asked mourners not only to pray for Clara and her unborn baby girl, but for the one that took their lives. The Reverend said, quote, ask forgiveness for him and ask God to bring repentance on his heart, end quote. 
After Clara's funeral, thousands of wanted posters were sent all over the US and there were reported sightings all over the country. Like every state, people were saying, this is him, this unidentified person is him. Like it was just, again, trying to get some reward, reward, reward money. Oh, I'm so tired. (laughs) We're nearly there. We're getting there. But then there were some even coming in internationally, some reported sightings coming internationally, but just none of them ever panned out. Then in March of 1927, six months after Clara's murder, a package had been found in a shallow grave halfway between Battle Ridge and Rising Sun, and the district attorney was hoping that it would contain some concrete evidence to link Erdman to Clara's murder, or this unidentified male. Like Remember, all of this is only circumstantial at the moment. It's strong circumstantial, but that's all it was. They didn't even know what the actual murder weapon was. They didn't have any DNA. They didn't have a confession. It's all just theory. However, this package contained a yellow polka dot dress and two pairs of silk pantyhose that all belonged to Clara, but also an ivory dress, which everyone believes to be the dress that she was going to get married in. Like, she was just a hopeless romantic. She was... Oh, that's heartbreaking. So she didn't even follow all of uh, Erdman's instructions there because she packed two big dresses and and um, pantyhose. Like, and he said, you know, don't bring that much. But after this discovery of the clothes, the investigation ran cold. There was still a reward set for Erdman's apprehension. And like I said, over the years, there's been sightings. There's been suicide victims thought to be Erdman. Theories spread about where he could have gone, but just nothing came out from them. After a couple of years, Albert, Erdman's father, urged the governor Zimmerman to review the case and drop the charge so that Erdman could return home. But after the review, the governor stated that there was sufficient evidence to try Erdman for first-degree murder. The reward for Erdman's apprehension was $3,000, which today would be 51,381 US dollars. However, it has never been collected to this day. Clara's family tried their best to move on. None of her older siblings, Minnie, Adolf, Bernard, Emma and Arthur, they never married. They remained single and childless, spending their years looking after Dina and Christian until their passing and then continuing to run the farm. Whereas Clara's younger siblings, Alice, Cornelia, and Inga, they married and had their own families. Like I said earlier, they were a very close-knit family. They all supported one another, and especially through their time of mourning. They were all hoping that their sister and niece's murderer would be found to face justice, but this hope was never fulfilled. Clara Olson's murder is technically and legally unsolved, but due, and this is due to no one confessing or paying for the crime, but the amount of evidence against Erdman and with no other suspects, it's theoretically solved. We know who did it. We know Erdman killed her. We just don't have the how, we don't have the with what, and we don't have his confession. But that, my lovely listeners, is the heartbreaking story of Clara Dorothea Olsen, a blossoming young woman who was just swept up in a whirlwind romance only to have her life and her unborn daughter's life ended so short in such a brutal way and without receiving any justice for it, which I think is the worst. 
But thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you for listening to the thunderstorms with me. (laughs) And I will continue trying to get the audio situation sorted out. But get in touch on Facebook or Instagram at Coffee and Crime Podcast. Leave some twinkles and a review before you go. But until next time, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will catch you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime.